I, I want to minister today a word that, um, in a way, is a, a capstone off of our series on the cross. We did this several months ago, if you'll recall. On Tuesday evenings, we talked about the cross on the backside of talking about the church. And we did that for a couple months with the church every week, really investigating the church in Acts. That led me to really want to investigate the cross because the cross is what the church gets to present to the world. That is our message at the end of the day, is Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And we can talk all about power, influence, kingdoms, dominion, um, principalities. They are all relevant conversation. But our message is Jesus Christ died and raised from the dead. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, the church needs to major in that and minor in everything else. If we majored in a crucified and resurrected Jesus, we would find that the minors have help. We have support. We have a resurrected Christ to help us with the minors. And, and by minor, I don't mean unimportant. I just mean they're not central to what we are. And what we are are followers of a living Christ. I heard someone say this week, the, the greatest miracle of the resurrection is that if it didn't happen, you wouldn't know about Jesus. I thought... That's maybe a chicken-egg argument. Like, would you know about Jesus without the resurrection? Or do you know about the resurrection without Jesus? No, I actually, don't, I actually don't think we would know anything about this obscure carpenter from a place in Palestine in the first century if it weren't for the story that he resurrected from the dead. Because we wouldn't know about him because he died. Because everybody dies. And we wouldn't know about him because he was crucified because millions were crucified. And for much larger offenses than what Jesus was crucified for. But we know about him because he resurrected. Therefore, that's our message. And so... We spent a while on the church, we spent a while on the cross, and I have worked in and out of this on the cross with everything we've been saying for six months. Every Tuesday night, a little bit more. You, you, it looked like they were messages on grace. It looks like they're lessons from Ephesians. But they're really me working over, yet again, what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? What does it mean to pick up my cross and follow Jesus? And that, uh, I, I say capstone, and I don't in any way mean I'm done, but I mean I feel like I've arrived at another spot where I can talk about it, maybe talk it out a little bit with a biblical story. So I want to title this today, The Way of the Cross. Uh, I want to take a look at Mark chapter 10, and I want to look at that moment when James and John come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus a question, and we want to look at what they ask, and we want to look at why. So let's get started with just a few verses, and we're actually going to work through a bigger chunk of Mark chapter 10 in a moment, but I want to start with three to kind of get us set up. James, John, sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I, I, I'm always struck by how pretentious that sounds to say to Jesus, Hey, I just want you to do whatever I want you to do. I mean, you wouldn't, we wouldn't say this to anyone in our life. I want you to do whatever I ask you to do. But they say it to Jesus. And I've been accusative of them for a long time. The Lord showed me this a couple days ago. So I've always accused James and John of being a little pre presumptuous. But what if they're not being presumptuous? What if they're being faithful because they finally feel comfortable enough to talk to Jesus like this? This might represent the way we're supposed, the, the, the kind of attitude we have when we finally realize we can go to God and start to talk to him, perhaps. Just, just, just keep in mind, maybe it's not about bashing James and John here. Maybe it's about understanding how they get to this point. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And he said, well, what do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, grant us that we may set one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And the very nature of the question, in your glory, means that they realize that Jesus has come to do something bigger than he's doing. He's not in his glory yet. He's just a guy they're following around, watching heal and listening to him teach. But they know that there's a glory to come and they believe in him. Now, what they think about glory and what we think about Jesus' glory, maybe they're two different things. And I'm going to show you in a moment, I think they are. But they have this idea that there's a right hand and a left hand. And the right hand and the left hand would mean what it sounds like. My right hand man, my left hand man, the two people next to me that help me rule in this kingdom that I'm setting up. See, Jesus, this is Mark 10. Jesus, way back as early as Mark 3, starts preaching parables about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And it's seed in the ground, and it's the dragnet, and it's the sower, and it's all these stories about this thing he's going to do. I'm going to establish this kingdom. Well, his disciples are getting excited because this is why we're following you. You're going to set this thing up, and we're kind of on the ground floor of this. Like, we know the guy. And so if this is the guy and he's going to set this whole thing up, we want in on it. We, we, want, we want our share of it. I mean, if, if you're going to have power and you're going to need people to help you, because that's what, you know, rulers need guys to help them. Well, we want to volunteer. We want to be those guys. And so when they talk to Jesus about his glory, don't think heaven. Don't think shining white light at the top of the Mount Transfiguration, because that's us thinking. We think glory. We think glory land. They are thinking power. That's glory to them. And so when you get your power, whatever that's going to look like, we want some of it. Just let, let me be on the left, let me be, me be on the right, but we want to get in on this thing. We want to get in on this power. Um, I want to just try to land on how they get here and, and, and why they could possibly think this. Um, do you recall in John 14 when Jesus is talking to his disciples about, it's uh, in my father's house are many mansions, Many, many rooms, many abodes. Uh, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again and receive you to myself where I am. There you may be also. Um, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Philip raises his hand. Just show us the Father. Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. This is that, this is, John 14 is really the revelation of the fatherhood passage of Jesus. Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God always will look like. Stunning revelation to the disciples. Stunning revelation to a lot of Christians. I, I say things in churches all over the place. Nothing probably seems more stunning to the average Christian than Jesus is exactly what God always looked like. And if you think God looked like anything else, you're wrong. And the scripture you're reading is missing Jesus. It just needs Jesus there. That's a stunning revelation for us. That was a stunning revelation for them. Once you get it, your Christianity changes. Because everybody in this room is a product of that. You got the revelation at some point. God is a father. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus lives in me. I must be part of the family. That's good. That's good revelation. I'm part of the family. I can relax. I'm not backsliding every day. God's not trying to take my job from me. He's not trying to get me killed. You're not judging me for this. I can relax. I'm at peace. I'm not condemned. I'm not acting perfect. This isn't about perfect performance, but it's about acknowledging who I am. Once that revelation starts to settle in, your whole world changes. The way you read your Bible changes. The way you pray changes. The way you go to church changes. The way you testify. I think the way you witness. 
And yes, I even think the way you live. I think the way you live slowly but surely starts to change when you start to realize he's your father. Because if he's your father, then you're the son. You're not a slave. You get to talk to him like he's your dad. And you don't talk to your father or your mother like you talk to a stranger or your next door neighbor. You just don't because you have history and you're comfortable and you can say what you want to say and you can say things only they can understand. And so the more comfortable you get with Jesus as Father, the more at ease you get with talking to Jesus. So maybe James and John had the audacity to ask Jesus this because they remembered this from John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these shall you do. Because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Not, maybe, this is, they look, they got to look at this as a guarantee. This is John 14, 14. If you just went back a little ways, that's where Philip raised his hand and went, hey, show us the Father. Jesus goes, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, well, the moment they realize that, that's like, a, that's like manna from heaven. That's a revelation. Oh, if I see Jesus, I'm seeing the Father. Well, what if I believed that? Well, if I believed it, then maybe I could receive the glory if I just asked for it. So James and John are starting to believe it. They're like the other disciples. They start to believe, I think he's God. I think he's one with the Father. And if that's the case, he told me that I could ask and I could get it. So I think when James and John walk up in Mark 10, they go, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask. I think, it's a, I think they're at the level of someone who's finally realized they're on dad's knee. Not someone who's sniffling and, and hoping and crossing their fingers and sliding money over to God and sliding their performance over. They just walk up like kids and go, if this is real, we want what we want. And Jesus goes, okay, what do you want? And they say, we want to sit on your right hand, and your left hand when you come into your glory. Because we actually believe that you are coming into your glory. We believe you when you say that you're going to be glorified. We just want to be in on it. We want in on the party. All right. Well, if that's the case, then how does Jesus answer James and John when they ask to sit on the right hand and the left? Because he said they could have whatever they want, and they believed it enough to ask for it. Before I read you Jesus' answer, I want to read you one little New Testament roadblock to getting whatever it is that you want. And it's from James. Chapter 4, verse 3. You ask, but you don't get it. Why don't you get it? Because you ask amiss. That's just out there. But you ask so that you may spend it on your own pleasure. So you ask because it's something that you want to consume into you. And this is the roadblock not just for James and John, this is the roadblock for Paul. This has probably been the roadblock for you in some of your prayers, is that there's a lot of things that we're asking, even if we're asking it in Jesus' name, we're asking it as sons, but we're not asking it according to his glory, we're asking it according to our glory. And the definition of glory that we have is not always the same as the definition of glory that he has. See, they think that they've got it. Jesus is going to be king, he's going to rule, and we're going to rule with him. And it's a good thing to ask because we could be on the left hand and the right. But the problem is, is that they're asking for something that doesn't exist 
Glory exists, but not in the way they think it does. The kingdom's going to exist, but not in the way they think it does. Power exists, but not in the way they think it does. So while they're asking right, and they're asking dad, they don't understand what they're asking for. And I think sometimes, because we are focused so much on this dimension when we pray, that we ask God for things and we go, well, why didn't God do it? And it's, I think a lot of it might be this James and John story. We think we're asking exactly God's will, but the reality is, is the way we see the will of God and the way God sees the will of God are sometimes two entirely different things. And getting on the same page is possible. Absolutely is. It's, I, didn't, I, I don't try to trick you there. It's not that, oh, forget it. You're never going to be on the same page with God. You just get lucky. Just throw a million prayers at the wall, and maybe the couple that stick, then that's God's will. No, it's way better than that. You could do that and not have the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'm a believer that if you can come up with a conclusion and you could have got there without the Holy Spirit, then it wasn't God. You know, that's why some of the systems of the world um, work. You don't have to ask God if they'll work. You just have to try them out. doesn't even mean it's God's way. God's way is going to be different. And so it is possible that it'll get on the same page. That's where Jesus tries to take them. So let's, let, me, let me show you how Jesus answers this. Go back to Mark 10. And here's Jesus' next statement. You do not know what you ask. Okay, that's... But I, I, Try not to peek. Just look at that alone. You do not know what you ask. Of course I know what I ask. I'm not stupid. I just asked you if I could sit on your right hand or your left. And Jesus goes, no. You don't know what you're asking for. You think you know what you're asking for, but you don't know what you're asking for. You think it's going to be a king, and I'm going to sit on a throne, I'm going to beat up Caesar, and I'm going to knock down Rome, and I'm going to need a couple generals, a couple dudes at the top of the hierarchy, and they're going to have big houses, and they're going to run big pieces of property, and they're going to have all the money, and they're going to have all the authority, and you think I need that in the way the world needs it. He goes, you don't know what you're asking for, because if you knew what you were asking for, you'd realize we're not on the same page. What would it mean to get on the same page? Are you able to drink the cup I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they said, we're able. Now they still have, I think they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Because I don't think you'd be so quick to go, yeah, sure. I mean, because if Jesus called you off and went, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to die. And you went, that's cool. (laughs) Nobody does that. None of his disciples did that. Peter thought he had it. Peter goes, if they kill you, they're going to kill me. And then the first moment Peter finds out they're actually going to kill Jesus, he denies he knows Jesus. Because we think we're asking for something, and we're asking for something totally different. And Peter goes, oh, they they kill you, you'll have to kill me. And Jesus goes, you're going to deny me so fast. I mean, the rooster's not even going to be able to crow. You're already going to have denied me more, more times than I can count. And that's exactly what happened. And why? Peter wasn't a fool, but Peter didn't know what he was asking for. And he didn't know what he was looking for. And that's Jesus' statement to them. And they go, yeah, we're able. And so Jesus says, well, you know what? You actually are going to drink the cup that I drink. And you are going to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Which means that whatever I'm about to go through, you will indeed go through it. Here's the problem. You don't know you're going to go through it, but you are going to go through it. The cup is more than a cup. The baptism is more than a baptism. Of course. We have no evidence that Jesus goes down to another river 
and gets dunked in a river. But according to the book of Luke, Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I cannot wait until it happens. And this was long after he had been baptized in the Jordan. So for Jesus, the cup and the baptism are allegories for the same thing. They are what he receives from the Father as the price paid for entrance into the glory of God. This is the cross. He never uses the word cross, but this is the cross. The cup I drink, the baptism I'm baptized with, it's taking into me whatever it is that God pours out. And you think you can do it? He goes, you'll do it. You will do it. It's not what you think it is, but you'll do it. However, next phrase, to sit on my right hand, to sit on my left hand, that's not mine to give. That's for those for whom it is prepared. And this is a key phrase. That's for those for whom it is prepared. God has a preparation to his kingdom. He's going to do it his way. I love this moment from Jesus. Jesus admits to James and John, yeah, in the end, you are going to die for this. But I'm not allowed to pick who's on my right hand and my left. That's my hands are out. That's grabbing a hold of the first two I drag in to the kingdom. He goes, I don't get to pick who that is. I don't get to pick who's on the right and the left. That's an amazing admission. This is Jesus saying, this belongs to the Father. The glory that I'm going to enter into, you got to enter into it through the cross. you got to drink the cup of judgment, and you got to take the baptism of fire. I'm going to do that at Calvary, but I don't get to pick what it looks like because that's up to God. How this kingdom gets established on day one is up to God. I'm, I'm setting you up for this. I'm trying to... Trying to get you to think along those lines with Jesus. For Jesus to go, I don't know. I don't know who gets to be on the right, who gets to be on the left. That's up to God. Whatever that is, is what the kingdom looks like. Because he says, it's for those for whom it's prepared. When the ten heard it, they begin to be greatly displeased with James and John. And this tells me that the spirit of competition was quick. That the moment the other ten heard what James and John were asking, they want in on the party. They go, well, okay, if you guys are going to get to be on the right and the left, <laughs> uh, or if Jesus didn't know who's going to get to be on the right and the left, maybe it's because it's going to be me and not you. That's kind of exactly how we would handle this. Let me read this out. 42. Jesus called to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet this shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, shall be your servant. Stay right there for just a second. I just want to show you one thing. The way of the world, the way of the Gentiles, is authority. You exercise authority over people. Strong survive. Stomp the weak. This isn't the way we're going to do things, boys. Whoever wants to be great in the kingdom I'm going into, got to become the servant. Okay? Big moment. You're getting the first definitions of what it would look like to get into the kingdom. This is totally opposite of what it looks like to get into the Roman Empire. It's totally opposite of what it looks like to get into the halls of Caesar. He's doing this on purpose. Because it doesn't look anything like it looks if you were to do this the way the world, 44. And whoever of you desires to be first has to be slave or servant of all. Well, that's not any fun at all. So watch, watch the inversion of Jesus. So whoever wants to be at the front of the line has to start at the back of the line. He goes, welcome to the kingdom. So I'm just giving you the way this thing plays out. He says... Even the Son of Man, even I, he said, don't get to go in the front of the line. 
That's what that means. Even I didn't come to be served. I came to go to the back of the line to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So even Jesus says, even I don't get to go first. Well, that's confusing. I mean, I want in on this kingdom bit. I'm following the one that gets me in on this kingdom bit. He admits he doesn't even get to go first. So he's presenting me with some kind of case by which, I, how do we get in then? What, what's, the, what's the way in? What's the, the path to, to taking this journey? Let's talk way of the cross. The way of the cross is opposite the way of the Gentiles. And I put in parentheses the world because that's what the way of the Gentiles is. We're living in a world where they talk Jew, Gentile, Israel, and everybody else. And so let's talk world. The way of the cross is opposite to the way of the world because the way of the cross is not the path of domination. The way of the cross is the path of service. The way of the cross doesn't grasp power. The way of the cross gives whatever we have to become all he would have us to be. They are asking who gets to sit on the right and the left. Let James have one hand, let John have the other. Jesus goes, I don't know who gets to do that. I'm not even sure how dad's going to pick those two guys. I don't know. I don't know who he's going to pick. I promise you that I'm not just hanging on this right and left unnecessarily. Because I actually think the Gospels show us who's on the right and the left. I don't mean we don't, we don't have to guess. The Gospels tell you who's on the right and who's on the left. We'll get there. Jesus goes, I don't know. What I do know is that the whole system of drinking the cup and being baptized is a system of service and sacrifice and giving, not getting. Not I get all of this, but rather I give of this. And Jesus goes, not sure what it's going to look like, but I know it's not going to look like the way of the Gentiles. Because it's not going to look like Rome, Pontius Pilate, or Caesar. It's going to look some other way, and we're going to be in a place of service. And he goes, that's how we're going to get in. I, I want to I give you a statement that really brought me some liberty this week. This one sentence, or two, I don't remember how many, I think it's one sentence. This phrase... Um, birthed this sermon, okay? is by Brad Jerzak. And he said, the way of the cross is not the death of your personhood. It's about dying to what is not real, what is not love. The reason why that statement birthed this sermon is because I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with the way of the cross. I know his death was my death. Paul makes that abundantly as clear as you can make something from Greek to English. We know that when one man died, everybody died. Sounds to me like when Jesus died, we were there. Great. Well, then why do I pick up my cross and follow him? Well, because there's a bunch of me that is being put into a bunch of him. And even though spiritually I've met my death, my judgment, my punishment in Christ, I carry a lot of baggage and I've tried to preach that cross to you 15 ways in the last six months. And I think we covered a lot of good stuff. Cross as a gateway, cross as a tree, cross as a keyhole into a whole new world, the cross pulling the past into the future. Every imaginative thought I could come up with for the cross. This statement did something for me because that first sentence helped trigger something in me this week. 
The cross is not death to my personhood. In other words, the cross is not death to my personality. It's not death to my, my joys, my hopes, my pennies, my dreams. It's not death to who, what makes me me. And it's not death to what makes you you. God's not asking you to put yourself into the cross so that he can sanitize you. So that he can make it easier to deal with you. Because you got some attitudes and, you know, you joke around too much. Or you, you're not ambitious enough or whatever. And I want to kill all of that in you. But the reality is that it isn't killing your personality. It's just dying to the stuff that isn't really real in the first place. It's dying out to the stuff that doesn't define the God of love. God is love. Okay, I got a bunch of stuff in me that doesn't line up with God as love. Some of it's guilt, some of it's shame, some of it's fear, some of it's condemnation, some of it's pain, none of it's God. And so when God puts Paul White into the crucible of the cross, I've already met my death in Christ, but as Paul White meets the crucible of the cross, me walking into him, he's putting to death the stuff in me that are not sourced in the love of God. You get to glimpse this. When you fall in love with somebody, if you really fall in love with somebody, you get the glimpse what it would look like to bring the real you to the table and not have the real you changed into the image of your spouse, but to have the real you embraced by the image of your spouse so that the stuff in you that's fake could die. The stuff in you that was just masks and putting on a show and lying about what you really want, and, and not being honest about who you are, all that crap can eventually just go to ash. In the fire of your lover. Your lover can embrace the real you and you start to feel safe. You start to feel safe to go, okay, I'm gonna open my soul and I'm gonna stop faking it. Because you fake it. You're dating other people or you're trying to meet that person and you're putting on a bunch of fake stuff and you're trying to impress people, make them think something of you. So when you fall in real love, okay, that's the best we can come up with for the flames of the cross, in my opinion. It's, a rom it's an intimacy. I, I use the word romantic there. It seemed like too much, but you know I'm going to use it anyway. It's a romance. It's a divine romance between you and God in which he has embraced you as spouse we don't have to make it sorted, just make it covenantal. He embraced you as his spouse and he entered into a covenant with you and he bound himself to you and asks for your honesty. And so what the cross is doing is really just burning up the stuff in you that's not real. It's the stuff that you don't need. It's the stuff that doesn't define the real you. It defined the projected you. It defined the afraid you. It defined the angry you. But it wasn't you. And he loves you so much, he keeps stepping into that flame with you. You know, that's your fiery furnace. So when I say, what's, what is this way of the cross business? It's the way of constantly bringing who I really am to God so that he can crucify what I'm really not. Not so that he can crucify what I am. He can embrace what I am and then he can crucify what I'm not. And you go, well, how do I know what part of me is not real? Great question. I'm not sure you do. I think we lie to ourselves so much about ourselves that it takes a walking this out with God before we start to get the truth about ourselves. And as we walk it out, the truth is revealed. 
The fire of his love reveals the truth. And then that's why you don't ever get over this. That's why this doesn't get old. That's why to me, if you go, I got saved years ago. That was my my born again experience. And I'm just waiting to go to heaven. I don't know if you've had a divine romance. I don't know if you're letting the fire expose your reality. And man, what a relationship you could have to walk that out. You don't have to be able to list off the stuff about you that needs to change. A lot of times all that turns into is works anyway. You're working so hard trying to figure out what's wrong with you. But own up to the fact that you probably need to step into the furnace. And when you get there, let him embrace that. So as far as I'm concerned, that's the way of the cross. It's not killing your personality. It's just getting rid of the junk that's it's not really you and it's not the love of God. And we've all got it. And the longer you live for him, the more you start to see there's some other stuff. Maybe it's down in the basement of your soul, but if you'll bring it out to him and go, here's the real me, and, and he'll say, okay, we're going to let me go to work on that. No, you're not lost. No, you're not backslid. No, you're not going to hell, but you just pulled a little hell out to the front. <laughs> and he went, we can take care of that. So who gets to sit on the right? Who gets to be on the right hand and the left? Even Jesus goes, eh. I don't know. What I do know is that I got to come in the way you do. I got to, even the son of man, he goes, has got to come in at the end of the line. I don't get to go in where I want to. I'm going to come in at the end of the line. And how do I know that's what Jesus means? Well, because look at Gethsemane. He goes to Gethsemane and he starts to pray and he starts to sweat and he feels spiritual pressure and he sweats as if it were great drops of blood. And he says to his father, father, if there's another way to do this without the, drinking this cup, let's do that. If not, I'll drink this cup. Now, I don't know fully what Jesus means. I always get responses from people. When I, when I teach things with question marks, I always get answers from people on comments and emails. Anytime you preach with a question mark, you get a whole page answer from somebody that's already got it figured out. So someone's already opened their window browser when they watch this before I'm even done talking because I say I'm not entirely sure what Jesus means in that prayer. Someone's going to explain it to me. So God bless you. But in light of that, I will still say, I don't entirely know what Jesus means, but it sounds to me like Jesus is saying to his father, this is going to be really rough. And if there's a plan B, tell me about it. Like if we could get the kingdom thing without this, I want to hear about that. And I got to think God showed him. Okay, well, one of the things you can do is there's going to be legions of angels waiting on the hills. If you want off the cross at any time, holler. But just know that this is the furnace. So if you get off of it, then you don't go through it. And they're going to go through it. So we're going to go through it in front of them. That's enough for Jesus, I think, to go, all right, I'll drink the cup. They got a crucible. I got a crucible. They're going to get crucified. I'm going to get crucified. We can't get out of it. Okay, that's what I think is happening at Gethsemane. But I know that the Jesus of the natural flesh is walking into this stuff one step at a time. Mark chapter 15, verse 27. And him they crucified with Jesus. They also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, He was numbered with the transgressors. I actually think that this is the gospel telling you 
who are the first two people he pulls into the kingdom? With his right hand and his left. Jesus told James and John, I don't get to pick. I'm not entirely sure what it looks like. And then when he spreads his arms out and they drive nails through his hands and that prisoner derides him on one side, remember me on the other, I got to think Jesus looks down and sees James and John somewhere near the cross and thinks, okay, this is the entrance to the kingdom is always on the cross. Who comes in through the right hand and the left? Whoever's crucified on the right hand and whoever's crucified on the left. You know how to get into the kingdom? You got to go in the same way Jesus did. And Jesus prophesied it. He went, if you want to be great, you got to go last. I'm going to go last. So if you want to be like me, you got to go last. I don't know who gets to be on the right hand and the left. And then when he dies, oh yeah, this makes sense. This is who gets to be on the right hand and the left. It's whoever steps into this cross. It's whoever walks into this death because walking into this death is the entrance into the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like. This is how it looks. That's the way of the cross. A couple cleanup thoughts. Okay? A um, couple things I want you to stir over a little bit as we kind of put that to bed. How are we so good? How are we so good at making this entire Christianity about eternity and personal relationship with God? Which, by the way, we're great at. That's the church you and I grew up in, all of us. There's a heaven to go to, a hell to shun. You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We specialize in those two things. How are we that good with that, but we're so poor at teaching people to experience the kingdom of God now? And we are poor at it. We are so poor at it, we can't even agree that it's possible. Like you could go into any given church on any given Sunday and you might even hear that the kingdom is something coming, not something you have. You might hear the kingdom's on its way, but it's not here now. The kingdom's slightly visible, slightly not. The kingdom is political power and we got to get the right people in office. The kingdom is authority. The kingdom is guns. The kingdom is muscle. The kingdom is money. Or the kingdom has all those things. We just have them under the right person. We need a good Christian Caesar. Something foolish. We come up with a lot of reasons to explain away the kingdom because we don't understand how to get people to experience the kingdom of God now. Maybe this explains our need to follow emotional experiences. I kind of think maybe it does. It's why we're always running after something we can feel, something that we, that we think will emotionally stimulate, turn us into a new person, help our walk. Because we don't trust when Jesus said the kingdom comes without observation. What Jesus said was the kingdom was going to be something you can't see, but we went, mm, is that really true? So we, maybe, it, maybe he meant we won't see it, but we can feel it. So maybe we go after something we can feel. I don't know. Keep that in mind. Here's another one. Don't skip yourself, others, and creation in your search for God. Doing so would indicate that God is in none of these things, that God is separate, that God is out there. And what I think this means is if you want to find God, love your neighbor, look around, pay attention to your heart. He's not a million miles away. Because if you don't see him in you and in her and in it, then you think he's over there. And if he's over there, he's somebody to go get instead of somebody that you have. And if he's somebody to go get, then you're already separate from him. And you're way behind the eight ball. And we're making it too hard to find God. 
because we're making him distant and which makes him irrelevant. And when you keep doing this, you, you start to think that this life is a curse, not a gift. And I know too many believers that think life is a curse, not a gift. Because they think the more that you enjoy this, the farther you are from God. Because they think God is over there and we are over here, not God is here. If you actually started to believe that God is here, then you'd be okay with enjoying life. Because the God of life would be living in your life. But if God is over there, how dare you like being over here? How could you like being somewhere God is not? So when I encounter Christians that are miserable in this life, it's because they have God over there instead of God over here. One more thought. Jesus did not wait until the cross to embrace the way of the cross. It was not an afterthought. It was the guiding light of his ministry. So he doesn't get to Calvary and go, okay, this is it. This is why we're here. I've been waiting for what? What was God? What was the Father wanting to do? Oh, I think we're supposed to die. No, he lived the way of the cross from the very beginning of his ministry. In the wilderness, he put the way of the cross on display. How? Jesus never mentions the cross in the wilderness. So maybe we're nuts here, but I don't think so. The way of the cross is actually the way that Jesus answers the devil during his temptations. The gospel reading today, the lectionary gospel reading in the, in the church world is the wilderness temptations. Jesus almost went back there for the 9,000th time with you today. So instead of preaching it, I want to end with it. And that is, Jesus eschewed the left and the right of political thinking when he was in the wilderness. And I want to show you how. And I, I, I already put him up there. We'll talk him out. He eschews the left sort of the social justice of feed everyone without the breaking of the cross, and he eschews the right's political power by means of might. Let me explain. The devil offers Jesus the chance to turn stones to bread. The world in which Jesus lived was living in abject poverty. Until the turn of the 19th century, planet Earth lived in a poverty that is beyond the imagination of the modern mind. The average person did not have enough food to make it through the day. And so there was no refrigeration, there was no freezing, there was no preservatives. You lived on what you could find then. You didn't save anything till tomorrow. You ate, well, because there was not hardly, in most cultures there was not enough to save till tomorrow. The entire action of life was figuring out how to survive, and most of it was how to get food. The reason why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell you the feeding of the 5,000, in my opinion, is because it was the most outstanding and unbelievable miracle Jesus ever performed. Only one of them tell you about Lazarus. Because when it comes to raising the dead, they thought, yeah. I actually think they thought, raise the dead? Man, the dead are the ones that got out of this hell hole. Why would you bring them back? I, I really do. I think they kind of looked at it like, Phew. Raise the dead, shoot. We look at like the, work, the best thing that could happen would be raised. We got it so good, we'd like to live another week. They had it so bad, they're like, he, he, he's out of here. Why would you bring him back? But feed 5,000 people with one kid's lunch, two little scrawny fish, and some loaves of crusty old moldy bread, and he turns that over into 5,000 people can eat and take 12 basketfuls home. Nobody gets to take leftovers home. Let me tell you about this miracle Jesus did where he fed 5,000. That was unbelievable to the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and year, a whole generation later, John told it to. 
John went, I can't skip that one. I know I'm trying to tell you stories nobody else told you, but dang, if that wasn't a great miracle. Watch this. He fed 5,000 people. And it was great because that was the issue of the earth. And Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and goes, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And if you could turn these stones into bread, you could turn those stones into bread. And if you could turn those stones into bread, you see where I'm going here? You could change the earth, Jesus. I believe in you. You got that kind of power. You could turn all of these stones into bread. And everyone could eat. It's almost like first century social justice. How can we feed everybody? Everybody deserves to eat. And Jesus goes, man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I want to ask you a question. Who's the word? I didn't say what's the word. Who's the word? In the beginning was the word. Words with God. Word was God. Word became flesh. Who's the word? Jesus. When Jesus says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, who's he talking about? Himself. Man doesn't live by... I could turn these stones to bread, but that's not the answer for planet Earth. You know what the answer is? Me. And you go, okay, well, what, how do we get it? Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have me. The food I want to give the earth can't happen unless I go break at the cross. Jesus eschews the left and says, it won't do you the good it will do you. I could feed the whole world bread. But what I come to do is set up a kingdom that can only happen when my body is broken and my blood is shed. And then he eschews the power structure of the right when the devil says to him, take a knee and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And to take a knee is to bow to the machinery of the devil. And the way of the devil is the exact opposite of the way of God. Which means that the way of the devil will pick up the sword and will slaughter its enemies and will crush them. And Jesus says, that it's not possible for him to serve the gods of this earth and follow the will of his father. And so Jesus excused the power of the right, which the, the, the politics of the right, which is to pick up power to do good. Pick up power to do good. Might makes right. And instead, Jesus excused it so he can go to the cross. He could have had it all right there in the wilderness. All the power that Calvary gets him without dying. Jesus invites you to the way of the cross. I promise you that on your way to the cross, the enemy is going to invite you to the powers of the world. And there will be times he'll even push the weapon right next to your hand and go, here's all you got to do. Just pick that up and use it. Stuff will change, man. Stuff will change if you'll pick this up. And Jesus is teaching you that you can't borrow the ways of the world and land in the kingdom. The great temptation is going to be to borrow the ways of the world. But it can't be done. And then in the kingdom. So all the way from the wilderness, Jesus is using the way of the cross. He's thinking ahead. Got to go through the cross. I could feed them all with bread, but I've got to give them my body. I could conquer them with swords, missiles, bombs, and power. But I'd rather serve them and establish a new kingdom. I could use the sword in my hand, but I'd rather use the sword out of my mouth. I can't do this if I don't go to Calvary. That's the way of the cross. That's following Jesus into it. No way that we don't go back, circle back 10 more times to the cross. But I needed to do that one. Let's pray. God, you are good. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for these little moments in this little word, I think, that gave us a little insight into what maybe you meant with James and John in their prayer and 
and what I do believe you mean in the way of the cross. And show us, it's been a, a good week, Father, of you helping me to see that the way of the cross is not death to Paul White's personality. That's something I struggled with for a long, long time. The way of the cross is just death to the stuff that's not real and that isn't founded in your love. Thank you for that, Father. Make that real to this room and to all who watch in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.